Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. This is episode 918, my interview with Darren J. Gold. We're discussing his book, Master Your Code. Guys, a really awesome conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, how you doing? Welcome. Another interview here to share with you today. Uh, lovely day where I am. How about you? Hope you're enjoying your life. This is a conversation about life and how to lead an extraordinary life. It's with Darren Gold, who is the managing partner of the Trium Group, and he advises and coaches CEOs and leadership teams at many of the world's most innovative companies, including, not limited to, the likes of eBay, Cisco, Dropbox, Warner Brothers, there's many more. Guys, he has also written a book. He is the author of Master Your Code. The Art, Wisdom and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. And that's exactly where the conversation takes us today, is how can we lead an extraordinary life? It's a question that I certainly have been asking myself, and I've written a book about it, which is being published. Uh, I've got the, the first copy, draft copy, coming to me via mail very, very soon. So, uh, fantastic conversation, guys. We all want to live an extraordinary life, and sometimes it's hard to navigate that um, that uh, that journey, but certainly Darren shares some wisdom in this conversation to help us to do that, and hopefully to encourage you, encourage you to pick up a copy of his book as well. All the links are in the show notes at thehiddenwire.com. This is episode 918, so check it out there, guys. Support the show by using the links within, and uh, we'll talk at the other end. Cheers. G'day, Darren. Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. Uh, Lee, it's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Good to have you here, mate. And um, how is it where you are in the world? Uh, it's great. I'm in uh, Northern California. It, the sun is out. Uh, it's a little over 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, we're sheltering in place. Uh, so that's like everybody's starting to get used to it and uh, hopefully uh, enjoying it and thriving it. I know I am. Are you? What are you doing yeah. to, to thrive in it? So you're, well, you're fully locked in? Uh, fully locked in, and uh, you know one of the gifts, uh, and I know there's a lot of you know suffering in the world uh, as a consequence. But a, one of the gifts for me is the my two oldest children who were in college at the time are, are back with us. So my wife and I are enjoying having them uh, back. I'm not sure they would say this, <laughs> the same thing. Uh, they're going a little stir crazy, but it's great to have the family together. Uh, it's also been a really interesting time to reflect and. Uh, have enough space to do that kind of reflection, uh, and I'm taking advantage of that. Yeah, nice, good work. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, mate, you've got a uh, a book that's just come out, um, Master Your Code: The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been a real. Uh, real privilege to be able to write a book, uh, and to put it out into the world and to have received some, you know, the feedback I've gotten and, to um, have an opportunity really to sort of synthesize and crystallize a lot of the work that I've done, uh, professionally and personally, uh, and be able to, uh, to have it in the form of a book, which has been a long, uh, long held aspiration and desire for me to have to, so I've accomplished that and done it. Uh, feels really great. Nice. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I, um, your background is uh, in in sort of working with the leaders and CEOs and, and really advising and coaching them to, I suppose, become better leaders. Is that is that sort of you in a nutshell? 
that is me at least, you know, the last uh, five, you know, a little more than five years has been really devoted and dedicated to that work. Prior to that, I, uh, I had the the privilege of running a couple companies myself. Okay. So uh, um, experiencing leadership firsthand and uh, investing in a lot of companies. I spent the better part of my professional career as a partner in two private equity firms. I did some consulting at McKinsey. I started as a lawyer. So it's been a varied background, but it's all led me to this path of first and foremost, really focusing on how do I become you know, exceptional as a human being and leader. And that's a lifelong work that uh, is, Mm. you know, still in the middle of, but then to be able to bring that, uh, what I call self mastery to bear, uh, in my work that I get to do with CEOs and their leadership teams, which is, is what I do. Yeah. I talk to a lot of leaders and, uh, coaches and, and people in business and, and I find a lot of the, the lessons that I take from them about, you know, leadership in general, uh, can be transferable to one's own life and leading an extraordinary life. And, and that sort of sounds like um, what you've just said then. I think they're inseparable. Yeah. You know, in many ways, I like to joke, because uh, I have three children, 20, 18, and 14, that perhaps the most important leadership lessons I've ever received are the lessons I've learned as a parent. Because if you want to talk about how do you motivate and influence uh, people that you think you have control over, but you don't really... Uh, have children and you'll, you'll, you know, you'll learn very quickly what it's like to, um, to lead effectively and lead from a place of not trying to change others. Cause I think that's a failed strategy, but from a place of owning the very change you want to see in others first and foremost inside yourself. And that's, that's a basic thesis of my work is that for leaders to be effective and to motivate and inspire others they have to embody authentically and consistently, uh, very visibly, the very behaviors that they're uh, seeking and wanting to see, see in their in their organizations and in others. And I found that to be very true uh, as a parent. Mm, yeah, leading in a, in a team or organization compared to leading at home is <laughs> kind of a different thing in a lot of ways, isn't it? But I guess it's it's not really. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of parallels, and and I think this notion of work personal and professional while they're at times important to keep them separate they are in oftentimes inseparable hmm. uh, and uh you know we need to think about i i believe our lives and how we lead it as you know kind of a holistic endeavor and what works in the personal do- domain works in the professional and vice versa and i think when you can show up in those domains as the same consistently, um, it's, you know, I think it can be very effective. Mm, and I think that's maybe becoming more common now, you know? Yeah. Feel, but... Well, I think we're in this grand experiment, right, where uh, those bl- lines are really blurring mm. and we're being, you know, we're being forced to really learn how do we move in and out of those domains, keeping, you know, proper boundaries, Um and so it's all it's all a balance um, and an integration of opposites, which I talk about a little bit in my book. But uh, I think we're we're really being forced to to confront that in ways that we hadn't before. Absolutely. So yeah. what I mean, you've got a background, obviously, like very business uh, focused leadership um, coaching. I, I don't. I mean, this book really isn't about leadership, is it? Um, necessarily, or is it? Like, can you correct me on that? Because it feels like. It's about a bit yeah. more beyond that. It's about the the inner genetics of, of us and the the code as such. 
Yeah, it is. It's a uh, what I would call maybe a, a self leadership book, um, okay. you know, or self mastery gotcha. book. And yeah, that makes good sense. Yeah, yeah. The basic question the book uh, aims to ask and answer is, what's the secret to leading an extraordinary life? And I think many of the what I much of what I offer has a lot of application to lead leadership. You know, traditional leadership, mm. um, but it goes well beyond. That and I, I often say that everyone's a leader. You're a leader of a team or an organization or a family, and you're certainly the lead, the leader or the CEO of yourself. Yeah. And so the lessons of leadership, I think, apply. Sort of goes back to what we were just talking about across domains. And the book is really about. I think everybody is looking for an answer to that question. However, you define extraordinary. You know, mm. um, like what what separates some people that you know, suffer and struggle from those that flourish and thrive despite almost identical circumstances. And the answer to that question, in my humble opinion, is mostly uh, internally, if not all internally. Like mm. that. So, and that's I go into the inner workings of uh, human beings, which, and I draw this distinction between program and code. And that sort of forms the basis for the book. Okay. Why, why did you decide to write this book? Because is it, is it a personal sort of itch that you're scratching? Or? Yeah, I think uh, mostly the, the, the immediate catalyst was my, uh, my oldest son uh, was, you know, at the time was 18, going, uh, going to college, and I wrote him a letter. Uh, and it was my attempt in a few pages to give him some wisdom on how to live a good life. And uh, I sent it around to a few people and friends and colleagues and clients. And before I knew it, it had been uh, passed around like a few thousand times. And so I knew there was something in the letter that really spoke to people and perhaps contained the seeds of a book. And so that was the original catalyst. And I had been on a decade plus intense deep dive into these questions. And it was, and I'm a huge book reader. uh, And I was like, I really, really want to write a book. And, uh, much of what I was thinking subconsciously was I'm not ready. I'm not an author. I need more time. People, nothing I'm going to write is going to be that original. And when I confronted those beliefs and big part of the book is the beliefs we hold about ourselves and about our circumstances determine the actions we take. Mm -hmm. Once I sort of saw those beliefs and began to shift them, I was, I was committed to writing a book and, uh, and I did. Okay, so a lot of those lessons that you put in that letter sort of coming in through the book as well? Yeah, it served as the kind of the original architecture for the book. Yeah. You know, the ultimate book, you know, has some differences to it, but it's it's uh, it's designed to be a guide for leading an extraordinary life. And I think um, my hope is that it accomplishes that. And it's been the feedback I've gotten and it does so in a way that doesn't pretend there's any easy answer to that yeah. question or that the path's easy because it's not. And, uh, so I tried to make it really essential, essentialist where I didn't have a lot of fluff in it. It's got a, you know, it's heavy in substance. Um, but also, you know, practical so that people could actually, you know, do something with it and put it, put it into practice. Yeah. And I think it's absolutely right. There's, I mean, everyone out there wants to lead an extraordinary life. Perhaps we're just not either tuned into what that looks like, the extraordinary part for us individually. Yep. Or, um, 
or we just don't know how. We just don't know the, the skills. And, and I really like that you say that it's not an easy approach. I mean, a lot of these books are, are written and people go, oh, I'm going to read this and walk away and, you know, know exactly what I'm destined to do. And uh, it's just not the way it goes. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I talk a lot in the book about mastery. And if you study anybody that's a true master at his or her craft, it's something that requires daily practice and a commitment to a lifelong journey. And, um, I think that's the same thing with, you know, leading a good life. Uh, it's not something, there's no simple formula. Uh, I wish there were. Um, and at the same time, I think people are hungry for and deserve some, some guidance. Um, Mm. I don't present, you know, pretend to have all the answers, but I have done enough, uh, of my own work that I wanted to be able to offer my version of what that, that guidance would look like. How do you feel about, I mean, that whole guidance piece, um, just a thought that came through my mind right now, but traditionally, you know, going back to tribal days even, you know, we looked up to elders, um, mm-hmm. we were guided by these people in our small little communities. We weren't so connected to everywhere else, whereas nowadays we're surrounded by everything. We're guided by everyone, um, and it's hard then to decipher, you know, what what guidance is the best, and also it becomes confusing then what the extraordinary life for us individually looks like because we're looking everywhere else other than internally to figure that out. Yeah, it's it's such a that's such a great point. I mean, there's we uh, you know we suffer from information overload, and to be able to discriminate uh, between all of that information that's out there is is so difficult. It's why the subtitle of the book is the art, wisdom, and science of leading an extraordinary life. And what I say in the book is that there this this there we have so much ancient wisdom that we've neglected. And that if anybody, if, if all you did was to return to the ancient texts, um, you're doing yourself a huge service. And so a lot of the wisdom that I try to bring forth in the book, sort of spoken in a modern way, is drawing on the incredible ancient wisdom yeah. uh, from the philosophies and, and religions of 2,000 years ago, you mm. know, Stoicism and Buddhism, uh-huh. uh, the Greek philosophers, um, we all, they kind of all knew <laughs> it was, this isn't anything that new. And so maybe the way I would answer your question is, um, find either modern sources that honor those ancient sources of wisdom and, and can summarize and synthesize for you or go to the text themselves or both. Yeah. Uh, I think that might be one way of simplifying what's, you know, kind of a overwhelming amount of information where we have today. What have you done? Because, I mean, you said you're a reader. Um, I'm a reader too. And, and recently, um, only very recently, I've just really started to tune out. And, I mean, I, I listen to podcasts. I love podcasts. Mm-hmm. And daily, you know, it would be just, okay, what podcast am I going to listen to next? Just always consuming. And I've, I've just started to sort of go, you know what, I'm going to switch off. Um, mm-hmm. I still love reading a good book. And I think books are great because it's condensed knowledge of someone's life, like, you know, the book that you've written, for example. Um, so you can get a lot of wisdom out of uh, one book, but sometimes it's a podcast, like even this one, for example, there's Mm -hmm. just so many of them and it can be so exhausting. Have you, you know, navigated that or managed that differently, um, over the last few years in your own life? Like, do you have a particular routine around how you consume and what you consume? Yeah. Yeah. Another great question. I think there's kind of a couple, uh, thoughts there. One is, I think there is this 
natural flow between consumption and integration uh, that that is just healthy, you know. And like there's, you know, consume, consume, and then there's a period of just, you know, integration that needs to happen, and just honoring honoring that natural flow um, is, I think, a really a really important thing. And so what yeah. you've described is you're sort of leaning into the integration part a little bit now. Uh, and then you'll go back to consuming is my guess. Right. And so I think knowing where you are in that very natural cycle and being conscious and intentional, I think is important. The other thing, um, that I've, um, really prided myself on getting good at, and I think it's maybe one of the most important and critical skills people can have is being a really skilled curator of information. And so I used to struggle a lot. I'd, I, was, I, I used to joke and say, I used to spend almost as much time trying to figure out what the next book I was going to read would be as I was reading the book. Yeah. And uh, I think over the years, as I've gotten, of course, to know myself and, um, and I've just read really good things and things that aren't so good, I've gotten a really good sense of like, what is it that I need to, to read? And become a good curator. Uh, and that's just taken time. It's been taken, you know, a lot of mistakes. Uh, I think it's also a function of when you land on something that isn't really working for you, you don't have to finish it. You know, yeah. um, a lot of people have this sort of false notion that if you pick up a book, you've got to finish it. Um, I don't think that's necessarily that the case. That was my notion for, for a long time and kind of yeah. still sits there a little bit, but I'm getting yeah, better at just going, you know what? I don't need to listen to this. I don't need to read this, you know? And, yeah, and turning off too. Yeah, exactly. But again, it's it's about you know going through that journey as an individual and and having those lessons yourself. Um, and I think that's part of it all. Um, and whether I'll go back to consuming as much or not, I don't know. But you know, you made a good point about um, you know two thousand years ago, people were talking about certain philosophies that are still relevant today as far as how to lead an extraordinary life. And I just think back to those days; they didn't have all this other than their thoughts and and people to talk with. Um, and perhaps that's the most powerful tools that we still have today is having conversations like this and having time to actually reflect on how to live an extraordinary life. And I think with all this information around us, as we've been discussing, it's so, so hard to figure out our extraordinary life and take that journey without being so distracted and influenced by everything else. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And then I think having a good uh, somebody who said, you know, you are the average of your five close the the, pe- the five people you spend the most time with hmm. uh, is you know being you know conscious of the that in that tribe right that that forms your group of people where you be, you have these kinds of conversations. Um, I think is important as well. Yeah, I mean the whole journey. Uh, this is the thing. It's it's really appreciating that it is a life's journey. But then finding joy in that journey, and I think that's that's the ultimate challenge because it's it's really hard to do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it was uh, Abraham Maslow, the, the the psychologist, that said, you know, what one must be, one one can be, one must be. Yeah. And some incredible wisdom in that, which is like, you know, I get this question asked a lot, like, you know, how do I figure out my purpose? Hmm. And um, oftentimes I say like, maybe the sole purpose of being human is to be what you can be is that path of self mastery is the path of, you know, always inching without being obsessed or having any angst around it, you know, one step closer 
to your full potential, which you'll never get to. That's the whole point. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, learning and, and enjoying the process of growth uh, without the burden of feeling like you need to, you know, accomplish anything or get anywhere. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's definitely um, evident that, you know, 30s and beyonds, we seem to slow down that, that growth progression. Um, we seem to start giving up on our own journey because it, I don't know, might get too hard or whatever. We feel like we failed or feel like we can't do it for whatever reason. And I'm reading a book right now about moments and that says, you know, the most fondest memories typically most people have is between the ages of 15 and 30. Because mm. throughout those years, most of the experiences we have are, are quite novel and new. Yep. And then we stop doing that. But, you know, if you can continue doing that beyond your 30s and your 40s and your 50s, having new experiences, trying to grow, trying to, you know, define your path, how many, I mean, I reckon that will just extend your life. Oh, I, I've got to imagine, you know, I just turned 50 this year and I, you know, I declared 50 is going to be the best decade of my life. And I'm telling you, it's already turning out to be that way, uh, like with unmistakably. And part of that, I think, is um, well, let's see, Michael Lewis had a, you know, was on a podcast the other day and he said, look, I just decided that I'm going to have as my dominant emotion happiness. There is this this human superpower that I talk about, which is our ability to choose um, the meaning we give our circumstances. And we can choose to say, you know what? You know, I'm past 30. Uh, the best years are behind me, right? That would be one way of making meaning of this, you know, maybe call it your second chapter uh, in life. Or you could say, you know what? This is going to be the most remarkable period of my life where my growth and learning and fulfillment's going to skyrocket. Mm. And the good news is we get to make up that meaning. So the question is not which meaning is true necessarily, it's which meaning better serves you. And that I call this human superpower. And, uh, you know, I wake up every day and I declare this is going to be an incredible day. Um, I thought about this conversation we were going to have, and that was my intention. And I do believe we have this incredible power to um, really create our reality uh, out of our beliefs, our thoughts, and our intentions. And that is an underused uh, capacity. Uh, and sometimes we don't even know we have it, which is part of what the book's uh, intending to do is to create awareness around that. Yeah. Okay. Well, where do we start with living an extraordinary life? Is it, is it about defining what that is for us or? I think you, Excuse me. you know, you, you can start anywhere where I start the book is, um, I start with a basic foundation of awareness and I share this uh, very short story of the two, these two young fish swimming along and the older fish swims by and he says, Hey boys, how's the water? And the younger fish look at each other and go, what the hell is water? And I love that story. Uh, it was a commencement speech by David Foster Wallace <laughs> before he passed away, of course. Um, and what it, what it, what it points to is that we're just not even, we don't even know what we don't know. And so part of the journey, I think begins with, entering the domain of what I don't know, I don't know. And oftentimes that's, you read something, you read something powerful, right? That provides you a distinction that gives you access to the don't know, don't know domain. Like, wow, I never even knew this idea of superpower or this distinction around, which I offer between responsible and victim mindset. And it gives you a way of 
seeing yourself, others, and the world in a totally different way. That awareness is the, where the, the journey begins. And for me, the most powerful awareness is that I get to choose the beliefs I hold, and those beliefs will fundamentally drive the actions I take and the results that I get in life. For when I first discovered that, uh, it changed everything. Yeah. And uh, then I began to ask the question, okay, like, what is, you know, what kind of life do I really want to live? And what's, what are the beliefs? What is it about my psychology, what I call my program that's getting in the way of that? And how do I begin to evolve and make shifts that get me closer to that? Yeah. What, you're, you're in your, you just turned 50, did you say? Or? Yeah, just turned 50 this year. Well done. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, when did that moment of awareness sort of, come into your life? I mean, you, you seem pretty aware now, but is that 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Have you always been quite tuned in? No, it was right around, turn, it was right around a decade ago, you know? I mean, and, and there's no like, oh, you know, one moment in time. Yeah, sometimes yeah. that happens, you know, but for me it was a bit gradual. Yeah. Um, but I went through most of my first four decades of life. What I call, what I say in the book is that I was, um, I was almost 40 years old and I, realized I was living a life driven by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. And when I realized that, like this notion of like, holy cow, my life is being driven by a set of beliefs, values, and rules that are I'm not even conscious of, that in many ways have really served me, but in many ways are limiting me, and that I get to choose, I can reconstruct those rules, um, it was huge. And so that began a journey for me of like really wanting to know more about that and uh, a real commitment to, you know, my own growth. And it just became like yeah. infectious. Like I wanted to learn more and more and more and, and I'm constantly uh, learning and growing and, and pushing my boundaries. So your forties was a, a remarkable decade for yourself and it just, you know, the story is there that it doesn't matter what age you are, you know, you can you can start tuning in and, and changing the, the path and changing the programming. Yeah, it, you know, it can happen early, it can happen, you know, much, much, much later in life. I mean, I think uh, Carl Jung said uh, what he called the noon hour of life, mm. which, you know, he called sort of midlife. And he said, you know, you have to build up enough ego strength to be able to dismantle your ego. And so in some respects, you got to have enough ego maturity to take your ego on. Um, like what, what do you, you know, the biggest one is like what people think of you Yeah. Right? and how much of a driver that was for me, um, how much it mattered, right? How likable I needed to be. Um, and once I had enough ego maturity to let go of that or to begin to let go of that, it was possible. And for me, that happened to be you know, late thirties, uh, for other people, maybe they're a little bit more mature than I was or a massive and obsessive drive for success, achievement and financial security. I grew up in a very, very broken family. Both of my parents were in jail, uh, from time to time. And, uh, I can, we can go into that. So my programming early was construct a very different life, get educated, get ahead, uh, earn money. And that was, that blinded me to anything else that was possible and it was understandable. Mm. Um, but so you have to, you know, everybody has a different path to finding that place where they can begin to be open enough and have enough 
of their basic needs met, um, that they can begin to have the the luxury and privilege of asking, you know, asking these questions. Yeah, I like it. That awareness piece is there. Anything in particular there that you've done, or any new practices that you've adopted to really help you tune in more and and have that level of awareness? Yeah, uh, for me, there's you know, there, it was just a, it was a lot of reading. Um, you know, I'm an avid reader. There were a few programs. You know, there's some really incredible. Uh, you know, experiences that you can avail yourself of. I, I don't happen to be a like huge proponent of any one, but uh, just to give you a, an example of a few, there's yeah. um, you know Byron Katie's work. Uh, she has an incredible book called Loving What Is, and I recommend uh, that book to everyone. I re- recommend the audio book because she narrates it and she does a lot of um, actual work in the book uh, with people. Okay. So you get a Sorry, what was yeah. the book called? Uh, Loving What Is. Yeah. And it's literally this notion of, you know, all of our suffering comes from believing our own thoughts. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when reality doesn't meet expectations is when we suffer. And so this notion of um, really, for maybe for the first time, really examining our beliefs and questioning them, uh, it's an incredibly powerful body of work. And I not only read her book, but when she has a nine day school and I did that. And there were just other experiences like that, that I jumped at that. I always recommend people that are, you know, really inclined to do this kind of, you know, personal work, the self mastery work, whether it's because you want to become a better parent or a better leader, or you want to lead a more fulfilling life, whatever the reason is, or you're in some sort of crisis and you really need it. Um, there are so many things and there's so many good ones. Uh, and so I did a bunch of that, um, I really, you know, said there's no better substitute than to actually experience it. And then, uh, you know, picked and choose, you know, what I, what really worked for me and sort of brought it all together into a personal philosophy, um, that that's, that's really worked uh, for me. Yeah. Okay. So the, the start with the awareness and, and it's then, you know, tuning into your beliefs and, and, and those moments where your beliefs don't serve you as far as the direction you want to take. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's one, uh, early distinction I offer in the book and just to, so we get to the, the, the definition, I, I define program as this set of safety based subconscious beliefs, values, and rules that automatically drive your behavior and limit your results. And then I contrast that with a code, which is a consciously chosen set of beliefs, values, and rules that is purposefully designed to, to really serve you and produce extraordinary results. And the program is this notion that we all have beliefs and values and rules. Most of them are hidden from our awareness. They massively drive how we behave and the actions we take and therefore the results we get. And when we don't get the results we want, it's not because... We, we go right to actions, but if we don't get underneath that and say, what's really at the source of action, um, we miss almost everything. Hmm. And I offer this distinction early on, this thing called survival strategies. And I describe this notion when we're children, all of us experience some form of traumatic event. It can be something really traumatic um, or something a little less so, like teasing or bullying. And I, I was born in London, England. I came to the U.S., Southern California, when I was eight. And it was cool to have an English accent at age 18, but not at age eight. And I got teased uh, for it. And in that moment, I wasn't conscious of it, but I developed this belief that I had to be liked. Hmm. Like that was just critical. And I became really good at being likable. 
uh, so good that um, I couldn't have direct, honest conversations with people. Yeah. And when I entered the professional world, that really limited me. And so, like, that was one of the first things I took on. Was I said, "Wow, I have this dominant strategy." I didn't even know it was like the fish in the water, right? That I had it. I just thought it was that's just the way the world worked. And I said, "What would it? Where does it serve me?" And I could see all the places it had. Where did it? Does it limit me? And I could see all of those. And what would it look like to hold a different belief, where, or at least hold it less with less attachment and less of a grip? And when I realized I had some control over that, that I didn't really need to care as much about what people thought about me, mm. it was free to act and do what I was really, you know, intending to do. It just opened up all sorts of possibilities. And the irony is that I could, you know, became even more likable, right? When you're authentic and real and honest with people. So like that would be one of many examples of where you might begin. Yeah. Do you, um, and again, it comes back to that awareness piece, I suppose, and, and being able to pick up on those moments where your beliefs aren't serving you. But is there any particular practices that you sort of talk about in the book where, you know, you really help people get, get inside and, and really decipher those beliefs and, and create, yeah, so, you know, new actionable beliefs? So that would be one, right? So I offer these three categories of survival strategies, belonging, which is like the need to be liked or to be included, um, which is the one I had. Uh, a distancing strategy, which is the need to be you know, smart and right and above it all. I have a little bit of that too. <laughs> we all have a bit of all three, but there's usually one that's dominant. Or a controlling survival strategy, which is the need to win, the need to succeed, the need to be perfect, um, to be in control. And just that process of identifying, oh, you know what? Mine is this. And I can even see where it came from. And even if I can, I just know like my need to be right or my need to be in control is so strong. And then the awareness to know that that belief was totally made up largely when you were very young and you're trying to like run and operate, you know, you're trying to live and lead a life in a complex world based on the rules written by a child. It's almost like you have, you know, an iPhone or a smartphone and you're trying to operate it in 2020 with an operating system from five years ago, it's not going to be very effective. Mm. So it's like just an upgrading. And it doesn't mean you have to diminish what came before. So that would be a practice of like, okay, I've identified a belief. I see where it serves me. I see where it's limiting me. I, I practice with a different belief. Um, and I experiment and then I see what happens. How do, how do you bring in that, that new belief or different belief? Um, to, to your conscious and subconscious mind, I mean, there are, there are affirmations or visualizations, uh, things that you do there, like writing it down or like, what do you? Yeah. So in this case, you know, like my need to not be light as likable, right. Um, you know, it's just, just to, to, to recognize it, but the, then to design an experiment, say, okay, for the next 30 days, every day I'm going to do something that begins to test this new belief. So a big part of it is we have to literally rewire our brains. The good news is our brains are malleable, this notion of neuroplasticity. Hmm. And we can literally rewire our brains, and we do that through habit. And we all know that, right? After some period of time, something becomes so habitual, we don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. So you can't just change a belief. You've got to actually put it into a new practice. And it's, I say it's got to be daily. Um, day after day after day after day. And I say, you know, commit to a month. You can do anything daily for a month. And, you know, you know, for likability, it might be like, I'm just going to say something 
a little bit more honest and direct than I usually would at work. In you know, once a day, you know, in a meeting or something, maybe a little bit more direct and honest with my wife. Um, but it's I'm going to do it once a day. I'm going to find an opportunity. I'm going to commit to doing that. And then we begin to see, like, oh my God, all these beliefs I had about, you know, holding back would make me more likable. It's actually the other way around. Yeah. And I begin to create a virtuous cycle where this new belief gets reinforced through the actions I'm taking. And before I know it, I've really reconstructed my psychology. And then you have that kind of experience and you're like, wow, I have, there's something really powerful here. I can take on all sorts of beliefs. And the two biggest ones that I talk about in my book are the beliefs I have about myself, which I call my identity, and the belief I have about my circumstances, which is I I either shape my circumstances or circumstances shape me. That one is probably the biggest. Yeah, yeah. It's a question about whether beliefs drive action or actions drive belief. And it's both, you know. Uh, Yeah, it is absolutely both. There's a, you know, there's a beautiful, virtuous or vicious cycle to that phenomenon. Yeah. I often draw it as like circumstance you know, with an arrow to belief, with an arrow to action, with an arrow to result, back to circumstance. And, you know, what you, the circumstances are the same. You know, two people can show up to exactly the same circumstance, make meaning of that circumstance, i.e. have a different belief about it, take a totally different set of actions and get a totally different result. And then the result they get will usually confirm the belief they had. So we begin to calcify you know, the kind of beliefs we hold and no wonder why it's so hard to, to change them. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, what, are the, what are the challenges you find when you're, you know, talking about this with people? Um, what are the obstacles that you face about them getting grips with, with this strategy? Well, a lot of people, you know, we're sort of the default psychology is we want to externalize and blame right? Not take responsibility. Because this is, underneath all of this work is a implicit taking of responsibility for your life. Like really can't, there's, I have a hundred percent responsibility for the outcomes in my life. And that is a little bit scary to adopt because I don't have anything to blame. I don't get to blame my circumstances or others, Hmm. which is we all want to do that, right? So part of the even unsaid or unspoken resistance is this notion that I have to take responsibility. I got to give up the whole blame game thing, which can be very seductive. Um, The other thing is a lot of the beliefs we hold really have served us well. Like, you know, and you're like, why would I give that up? (laughs) Uh, And so oftentimes I'm saying it's like not about giving up. It's about getting a more complex and mature set of beliefs that that allow for greater range of action. Not always, you know, you're not so obsessed, like my likability one, right? It wasn't that I was going to go around and um, be unlikable um, or not not care about, you know, what people thought. But I, I didn't need to be so compulsive about it yes. and so obsessed with it. And so with the easing of the belief and the attachment to it, I had more range and more room. And that just opened up a whole, you know, set of things for me. Yeah, Absolutely. But that's the resistance you will get is people, you know, our beliefs have been there for a long time. They don't feel like we have much choice. They feel like they are what they are. Like I always hear, that's just who I am. And I often tell people, no, that's how you've wound up being, which is a very important distinction. Who you are is something very different. Hmm. 
So, but people will sort of say like, oh, it's who I am. People don't change. I'm not going to change. I don't want to change. And that's understandable. There's no, no reason to. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the responsibility piece, I mean, that's a really big part, but it's, um, it's, it's easier said than done. Like most things, it's hard to implement, or, you know, ingrain that into someone, the, the ability to take responsibility because we're so used to being mothered and not having responsibility. And yeah. maybe some more than others, of course. But even as we're governed and, and and you know dictated to about what we can and can't do, um, it feels like we use that sometimes as more of a. And I guess it, it evolves our belief system as to hey, maybe we're not fully responsible because all these things are actually um, you know influencing what I can and can't do in my life. Yeah, it's uh, it's embedded in our culture, and and the other thing is. Sometimes we're just not responsible. There are things that are outside of our control, right? And so I often say that this notion of 100% responsibility isn't an assertion of truth. Because if we get into the question of, is it true, that's going to trip us up all the time. So I say it's not, is it true? It's, does it serve us? And I found, Mm. without exception, that holding the belief that I'm 100% responsible for my life, regardless of whether that's true or not, is always the more empowering belief to hold. Because from that place, I begin to see new actions. Like, let's say, for instance, you and I were having this conversation, right? And this is not true because you, you, this has been a great conversation, at least in my view. You were asking me questions that were kind of weird and a little off the wall. And I could go to a place and say, you know what? This guy, can, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's, mm-hmm. you know, and I would go right into the blame, right? And blame my lack of having a good conversation or underperformance on somebody else. And it might be true. But if instead I said, even put aside the truth, I'm 100% responsible, new actions would appear. How could have right? I shaped that yeah. a bit differently? How could I have shaped it? What, what are the small little things I could have done? How could I have maybe been contributing to that? And you'll find nuggets from that mindset that you wouldn't have in the victim mindset of like, it's somebody else's fault. And um, that's where all the growth happens. And, uh, Being and very open to that, isn't it? It's, 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 yeah. And, but, but not natural because we are conditioned to come from a place of looking to externalize responsibility and blame others or circumstances for, for our misfortune, even though that might be true. It's just mm. not very empowering. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't help this situation. No. And there's a bit of, um, stoic philosophy behind all that about, you know, what we can and can't control. As well, hundred percent. Yeah, I've been. You know, it's been stoicism has been an important influence. It's an incredible, you know, very practical philosophy. And as you said, this distinction between really focusing on what I can control and what I can't control, I'm not going to spend a lot of energy there. No, and in that interview, you may not have been able to control too much of the the questioning, other than, um, yeah, well, you couldn't have really, but you could have controlled in a way that you could have asked different questions or, or you know. Shifted the conversation in a different way. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Man, yeah. Lots of, um, yeah, it sounds like an exciting book and certainly want to encourage uh, the audience listening to jump online. I'll stick the link in the show notes for the book. Master your code and, and pick up and have a read. It sounds like a very interesting read. And uh, I suppose for a lot of people, wanting that extraordinary life is important. And, and books like this can really shed some different insight, can't it? Yeah, I, I think uh, that was my intention, and I and I hope uh, people have the opportunity to do that. What I've got a few questions for you, um, and maybe we've answered some of them already. And the first one I have is: any routines that you particularly 
practice daily that um, help you live an extraordinary life? Yeah, it, uh, absolutely. So I am a big believer in morning rituals and morning in particular to start your day with something that you do um, without exception. You know, I, I always like to say Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, early in his career said, I'm going to write a new joke. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad every single day, and I'm never going to break the chain. And it was that commitment to doing something every day that was in and of itself, regardless of whether it was good or bad, extraordinary. So I, I, am, uh, I always advocate and invite people to do something every single day uh, without exception. doesn't matter what it is. It could be meditation. It could be gratitude. It could be journaling. It could be you fill, you know, fill in the blank. But to do it and to do it, um, everybody can wake up 10 minutes early than they otherwise would. And to do a 10-minute practice, which is totally doable, right? It's not, we're not saying do something for two hours. Mm-hmm. I wake up at 6, wake up at 5.50. Um, and that in and of itself will begin to establish an identity, a belief about yourself that you're extraordinary. I'm one of the very few people, this is, I'm speaking of like you were to say this, that gets up every morning without fail. That's, that's extraordinary. And I begin to develop that virtuous cycle of a really extraordinary belief about myself. Um, the one thing I attach to that is, uh, the moment of waking up, which I think is the most important second of the day is I, I always say, I always say, thank God I'm alive. And this is going to be an extraordinary day. I wake up, there's a single day this year that I haven't woken up and that'd be the first thought I've, I've had. And then that can be transformative practice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Do you, um, and this is going to extraordinary life. How do you define success? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I do really believe, um, that it differs for everyone, you know, and, uh, for me, it's more of an emotional uh, answer. It's a feeling state hmm. um, as opposed to like I've achieved this because we all know, I think the, the philosophers call it a hedonic treadmill that we had. We set our sights on achieving something, even like the writing of this book. You know, the great feeling lasted for like a couple days <laughs> and then it was like, OK, what's next? Right. So I don't think an extraordinary life is some like material accomplishment because uh, we will find inevitably that the, the the good feelings are fleeting. It's the everyday feeling of waking up with ease and joy uh, and feeling light and fulfilled uh, with a sense of hope and optimism, regardless of what's happening. Uh, that is, I think, the sign for me of an extraordinary life. And it's you know, it doesn't mean that I don't have down moments or I don't experience negative emotions or I even suppress those negative emotions. I've learned to really take those in and find richness in them. But the dominant emotional home is one of zest and aliveness and vitality and, and, and positivity. And that to me is an extraordinary life. Yeah, nice. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? <laughs> don't be in such a rush. Because uh, part of me is like, wow, if I were 20 years old, if I only knew then, I'm like, yeah, but I wasn't ready at 20. Yeah. And so there's part of, um, part of it, the, the advice would be definitely laced with a lot of humility and patience of like, you kind of need to live life. You got to make mistakes. You know, there's no, no rushing things. Um, if there were one piece of advice, uh, it would be to read hmm. and, you know, or to, you know, to learn, I should say learn because everybody learns in different ways and different mediums. 
and they're equally uh, valid. Yeah. Um, but to be a to be a commit commit to being a lifelong learner. Yeah. Um, and that sort of came naturally uh, to me. But I, you know, I would have just that would have been the advice I'd give to any twenty year old, frankly. Very important. Very cool. What would be the last meal you'd request? Uh, what would be the if you were to be served your last meal? What would you request? Wow, I've never been asked that question before. Ah, uh, wow. What would it be? Um, I guess I don't know. I'll just say the first thing that came to my mind. I'm not sure I have a perfect answer, but there was a. Uh, I share in the book. I was estranged from my mother. Uh, and had a very tumultuous relationship, but there was a meal that she made, which was this macaroni and cheese that, um, in many respects, despite my childhood brings back a lot of fond memories. And, and maybe I'd order, you know, maybe I'd have that as just a sort of a connection to, to my youth and the innocence of my youth. Yeah. Nice. What, um, book would you recommend? And I know you've recommended one already by Byron Katie, was it? Yeah, Byron Katie, yeah. Um, is there another book you'd recommend for people to read, and other than your own, of course? Yeah, uh, there are so many. Uh, can I do two? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, so um, one is a, a, a book most people haven't heard of or read, which is called A Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. Uh, and I think it's just, um, if you like books that really challenge like conventional thinking and conventional myths, and takes them on in a provocative way, um, it's extraordinary. Um, I, I recommend this book to every leader I work with. Um, Failure of Nerve. Who was the boss, sir? Edwin Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And then I'm looking actually right at my bookshelf right now, and I would uh, uh, recommend The Emperor's Handbook, Marcus Aurelius, his meditations. Hmm. The Stoic, uh, you know, the... Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher. Nice. Cool links. And do you feel, and I think I've read this somewhere when I was reading through your profile on that, do you feel we all have a hidden why or purpose? I do. Uh, you know, the all the ancient wisdom speaks of like, you know, it was the Dharma for Hindus and... Uh, the Greeks had a word called entelechy. The Japanese have a word called ikigai, literally meaning the reason for getting up in the morning, which I love. It's the intersection of what I love to do, what I'm good at, what the world needs, and what I can get paid for. I think that's such a cool concept of trying to figure out what the intersection of that. So I think there's something to this notion of like we're all born with uh, something really special and unique, and, and part of what we're supposed to do is to be attuned to what that is. And to really honor it when it when it when we discover it, but but also not to be in such a rush to figure it out and be so anxious to figure it out. I think the more of a rush we're in, the more anxiety we have to figure it out. The harder it is to see. Yeah, well said. Yeah. And what do you feel is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Oh, uh, I I think it's. Uh, in some ways, I think what you're sort of pointing to is, is, um, is values. And I have a strong value around growth and, uh, growth and self mastery and learning. If I look at like the major decisions I make in my life, you know, the minor decisions where I spend my time, they're usually motivated by a sense of, um, of growth and learning and, uh, and self mastery. That's what I would say. 
Yeah. Mate, it's been awesome. Great conversation. Um, I'll Thank definitely you. stick your book in the, in the show notes for people to pick up a copy. It'll be through the Amazon link. Uh, is there a best platform or way people can um, find out more about you? Yeah, I've got a website, uh, Darren J. Gold, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D.com, and I've, uh, I write a weekly blog. If it's something of interest to you, I'd, uh, I'd love to have you join that mailing list, but you can learn more about me in the book there and my firm, The Trium Group. Um, that's that's a really good place to go. Cool. DarrenJGold.com. We'll stick that yes. in the show note, guys. Check it out. Darren, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Guys out there listening, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon